Welcome everyone to that co-production podcast. I'm Gary Hickey of the Research Design Service Southeast, and this podcast series is a joint venture between the Research Design Service Southeast and the Centre for Engagement Dissemination. And today on the pod, we're going to be exploring the difference between co-production and patient and public involvement. Uh, and joining me are my co-host Katie Turner, who is a researcher who draws on her lived experience, and she's also part of the patient and public involvement team at the Research Design Service Southeast. Hi, Katie. Hello, Gary. Hello, Ollie. Very pleased to be here with you this morning. Thank you. And we're delighted uh, to welcome onto the pod today our guest, Ollie Williams. Uh, and amongst other things, Ollie worked on a postdoctoral fellowship from this institute uh, uh, and he is hosted at King's College University of London. And Ollie has also co-founded uh, an art collective called Act With Love which seeks to promote and facilitate socially conscious design. So welcome to the podcast, Ollie. Yeah, hey, hey, uh, thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. So uh, Ollie, we always begin these podcasts with an icebreaker. So could you please tell us about one bad thing and one good thing that's happened to you over the last week? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's ambitious to or maybe cruel to ask people in the last week, given that our lives at the minute are very samey, aren't they? Do you know what I mean? Like I'm just stuck in this tiny flat. To ask for a good and a bad thing in one week, God, you're really pushing me. But so I'll probably have to stretch the rules a bit. It's not this week, but a couple of weeks um, ago, I was I managed to get away for the first time since the sort of pandemic hit and I was able to go to North Wales, which was really great. So the whole week was a good thing, really. But I suppose my good and bad things happened in one or chronologically it was bad, but good. So I was in the unfortunate position to find out that seaweed services as a sort of reliable toilet paper. So, yeah, it was good and bad because let, let's face it, if I didn't find that out, it would have been a, a worse situation than if I if I had the, the fact that I did find out in the end but yeah so that was good and bad all rolled into one but it was a nice time in Wales fantastic thank you Ollie <laughs> oh that made me chuckle that did uh, <laughs> right Ollie how, how did you come to be interested in co-production well I'm, I'm a sociologist so my work really has been around health inequalities particularly interventions that are designed to try and reduce health inequalities. So I've spent time in, in communities that have been sort of the target of government intervention to try and reduce um, health inequalities by improving the health of, of the people that live in these areas, generally um, deprived areas. And during this time, I just got really, really frustrated, I suppose, with the fact that so often these things aren't effective. Like so often they don't reduce the health inequalities and a lot of the time they actually exacerbate the inequalities that are there because the interventions that are designed kind of work for more affluent people and don't work so well for less affluent people so the gap between them gets bigger and so I mean there's lots of reasons why this happens 
more cynical people would say partly because it's by design like the, there's not a great enthusiasm to actually do things any better but one of the things that seems really obvious to me or, or was obviously problematic was that these interventions were often designed away from those communities by people by uh, policy makers or researchers or, or whatever and then sort of done to those communities you know so they would then go in deliver these interventions and they weren't successful because they're delivering an intervention that nobody asked for nobody wanted do, do you know what i mean whereas a different approach would have been going into those communities and talking to people and saying what is it that you need you know these are the facts of the area that people in this area die sort of 10 to 15 years before like the national average why is this what if we're trying to improve health if we're trying to improve people's lives what would you want to do and listen to those communities and then build things around what they wanted to do because that's where my thinking was that's I naturally gravitated towards the literature that was and the, and the work and the practice that was engaging with people and doing community development and doing participatory action research and those sorts of things so that's when I started to come across the term co-production I got into patient and public involvement as a, as a consequence of that, trying to see how people are involved in processes and what influence they have. And, and if I'm honest, it, it's been a frustrating time because what you actually see is we have a lot of systems in place that I don't think are delivering what they're promising to. And I think the, the shift to co-production, you often see it being used and we, we talk about co-production a lot now, but is it delivering on the sorts of things that I want it to be delivered when I was doing that work um, as a sociologist in, in those areas. I think you see some good practice, but I think more generally the stuff that is being described as co-production now wouldn't necessarily get us to the point where I wanted to get us. And I think that's interesting. So, so my current project now is looking more into when people talk about co-production within the sort of the world of patient and public involvement, what does that mean? What are people doing? What do people understand it to be? What do people then do in practice? And sort of the politics and the practices and the everyday reality around those things. Thank you, thank you Ollie and, and you mentioned there patient and public involvement and of course today we want to explore the differences between patient and public involvement and co-production uh, and we've been reading uh, the chapter, your book chapter that you wrote with some colleagues, is co-production just really good um, patient and public involvement which we really really enjoyed and you write, Ollie, about the different traditions of the two approaches between co-production and patient and public involvement. So could you give us a bit of a potted history of those two traditions? Sure, yeah. As I said, I'm a sociologist, so I'm not a historian. I mean, I've certainly no authority on sort of the specific timescales, and there would be people better placed to talk about those than I. But I could give you a more general understanding of how I see it. And I think one of the main aims of that chapter was to highlight that patient and public involvement and co-production have different histories and different traditions and have developed over time in different ways. That's kind of the point is a lot of people, I think, just collapse them into each other and think that they're one and the same thing. And one of the points of the chapter was trying to illustrate that these two things developed separately and they, they do overlap at certain points. But there are networks and there are traditions which are sort of um, have developed uh, differently over time in the, and have different origins. So, I think this is really important because in health research, we are seeing this more and more that co-production and PPI are being sort of spoken about as if they're the same thing. And that, that's, that's, that 
title of that chapter is co-production just really good PPI is something that people often say so that's not our that's a question but it comes from it's a thing that people say a lot in PPI it's that old oh, co-production is just really good PPI and sort of the starting point for that chapter was going does it like is it like is is that what um what, what co-production is so if we say that like the origin the origins of PPI in England then sort of developed from user-led grassroots movements from like the 1960s onwards and you, you know that there, there are different accounts of that and generally if we're going to talk about it that, that that's where it's come from so people wanting often uh, patient groups or activists on the outside of a system saying we need to have or we should have more influence within the system and then over time increasingly it's been formalized and so you've got with the NHS now it's now a legal requirement to involve uh, the public in commissioning of health services and in line with that the NIHR which is obviously the research arm of, of the NHS um, now requires either all or the majority and Gary you'll be able to pick up on that so either all or the majority of its research has to involve the public in the research designers in some way. So certainly from the funding applications that I've seen, there's always a requirement to state what you're going to do for your patient and public involvement when you're trying to get funding from, from the NHR. Um, so co-production is a bit more complicated because it has different and perhaps related but also sometimes perhaps competing histories so from a sort of public management point of view you have like Eleanor Oerstrom who's did some work in the, with her and her colleagues in the, in the 1970s did some sort of at that point real groundbreaking work where we went into a sort of police department in in Chicago and wanted to see why different areas had more effective policing than than other areas and you know, this involved like she'd get in the back of police cars and talk to communities and be, be with the police in that way. And at the time, she, they came up with like a really sort of groundbreaking finding. And it was a really novel finding at the time, because at that point in time, the traditional idea was that services, public services were delivered. They're one way, you know, that you have a they, that you have a provider and the provider delivers that service It's a one way process. And what their work really illustrated was that the, the more effective um, police policing services, in the, so the areas where there was less crime, that it was because of the involvement of the people in those communities, not necessarily, we're not talking about what we might understand as co-production now in terms of bringing people in, and, and but that thing of that people would put locks on their doors, protect their houses against being broken into, that you know, that people would report crime. So if they saw crime, people would call the police up and report that crime. And that if people were approached by the police to, to give information, they would give information. So those sorts of things. So it fundamentally changed this idea of thinking about services being this one way, but being provided one way, you know, to this idea that the services are two way, that they are in fact co-produced. So you have the service the provider and the service user are both working in unison and actually it's that relationship that will tell you if, if it's going to be a good service or not. And I think actually think that way of thinking was incredibly novel at the time. But now, you know, this was in the 70s and now that thinking kind of informs a lot of the stuff we do now. We're sort of we're more au fait with that, that way of thinking. But 
it also in some ways doesn't help us when we talk about the quest for a definition or whatever because what it's saying is that service delivery by its nature isn't is inevitably co-produced because you always have one a, a provider and a service user working in unison to to achieve something so it's not necessarily a conscious or active process it's, it's always going to happen because it's that it's recognizing that that interaction is important so you have that and then sort of coming from that public management tradition you would have this work of edgar khan looking at like time banking so this idea if you're trying to find an alternative way to like the economy which is creating huge inequalities the way that wealth is distributed in capitalist societies how can you create an alternative economy that actually deals with some of those inequalities so that idea of like time banking so that people can their 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 time and their expertise is given sort of like a value and then you can bank that time and then you can get it in return so you know you might do gardening for someone which means that you bank some time and then they might do things like if you need to move house someone else might have a van and then they can take you around so it's creating that alternative economy there's those ways that sort of public management school that is really um, developed from you also then have with my discipline sociology you have science and technology studies and sociology has been sort of fundamental within within that and that's more around the way that they use the term co-production is more around this idea of the construction of scientific knowledge and this idea that people like to have this false idea of science as being this clean detached objective provider of truth and science and technology really theory around that sort of really muddies that and saying that you know you can't create scientific knowledge outside the social world that already exists so for instance this is why we often see in the knowledge that's created in science a lot of the inequalities and the discrimination that are in the society that it's taking part in also are reflected in science so you know that we see really often in studies we're still at a point where women aren't taken as research subjects let alone um, people doing it so for instance my background comes from like exercise and physical activity uh, sports science really and there's loads of studies where a lot of the recommendations for how much exercise we should do or how what a normal uh, amount of uh, or a normal response to exercise would be is based on studies which have just been done with men and obviously we know that men and women have different physiology so there's lots of gaps in science like that and we see them gender but definitely with race as well the sort of scientific knowledge is co-produced in relation to the social world that, that it's in if you look at that with the public management you've got two very different uses of that term but equally you know legitimate they just stumbled across a, a term for something and sort of semantically you know it makes sense you've got the co and the production so there is a, a co in the sense of some sort of collaborative nature and the production as in something's being produced whether that's a service or whether that's knowledge but those things aren't they're different so even within co-production you have different histories or different traditions that are using that term but i'd say the sort of public management one is the one that's more relevant to what we're doing in public services so you've got that it's contested right and that, that and not just contested that there are different theories and different uses of co-production and so when i say contested often should it be contested do these things need to be competing the only reason we see them as competing is because they're using the same word and often you hear people and this is one of my big bugbears working in this field is people talk about true co-production so well 
both of them have legitimate claim to, to that term. They, they're meaning different things. So, I mean, we can come back to that. I think that's a whole, a whole thing to unpack. But I suppose for this conversation, the most interesting point of history is the points at which the paths of PPI or patient and public involvement and co-production cross in health research, because that's what we're talking about today. And actually that's what, that's what we're interested in. For me, co-production becomes buzzword of health research kind of in the last decade around that sort of time. And Gary, you'll be able to comment on this and because you sort of were on the inside, I suppose at this point, so it'd be really interesting to, to get your insight on this. But when NIH are involved, I, mean, I think most people will know that, but involved is an organization within the NIHR that is was tasked with trying to improve patient and public involvement or promote patient and public involvement, I think is, is a fair way of describing that they make an important and well-meaning effort to address tokenistic practice that had been called out or identified within PPI. And we know that that, that was really common at that time. So the, the implication that people needed to do PPI and then after a bit of time and people start going, well, hang on, yeah, it's being done, but is it being done very well? Actually, there's lots of problems with the ways that it's, that it's um, playing out. So at that time then, I think as an effort to try and address that involved have this definition they, they create this new definition of what patient and public involvement is so it is so if we read it then so involved defines public involvement in research as research being carried out with or by members of the public rather than to about or for them so this is what we mentioned in the chapter what's really important here is that they highlight both what ppi is but also what it isn't and i think that's really important because the reason they're identifying it, uh, what it is and what it isn't, this is an attempt to get away from these tokenistic practices, to push researchers to do the sort of work that actually makes PPI meaningful or worthwhile doing. And I think that that's really important. And But what we get with this at that same time is that the word co-production sort of enters the language of PPI as a way of trying to achieve this I suppose, doing research with and by members. Now, at that time, as often happens in these spaces, some of those people might have been using the term co-production, knowing all about the traditions and the histories that have already occurred before it. A lot of other people would have been using that term without any of that knowledge and would have been using that. In my experience, it seems to be people use that as a sort of synonym for co collaboration. You know, that co-production is no more than just trying to achieve things together. And it's kind of that Church of England. If we all work together, things will be better. So we should do that. And without sort of that knowledge of that there are these different traditions and there's this different history. But I think then what becomes really important is that point in time where it's crossing, they are involved with trying to get rid of or to try and challenge the tokenistic practice. And that sort of, it's not a coincidence at that time that co-production enters that language then. So I had this conversation recently with Joe and Dan over in Sheffield, Joe, Joe Langley and Dan. Boston home. That's, that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's and, um, a future pod, hopefully. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we had this chat and what was really interesting is that there's lots of different definitions we can go around this because that's obviously what happens if you use a new word and people are like, well, what's that word? And then everyone wants a definition to it, which, as we said, is going to be different, difficult because people have used that term in different ways through time. 
it's then about intention. And I think if we're talking about this space, the, the health research space and applied health research space, that the term co-production comes into the language that's being used as a way to address poor PPI practice and to try and promote better PPI practice. So to make um, PPI practice meaningful, to make it worthwhile, to, to make it genuine. What happens at that point of time, certainly within this space, is co-production, that term becomes a signifier for more inclusive, more collaborative practice, right? And I think at that point in time, if we recognize that, that's really important because we can then start to think about, okay, do the practices that people do when they say they're doing co-production align with, with what that symbol is, is representing for them? So we know that we, people will write in their research applications, their funding applications and their research plans that they co-produce something. And in part that they're doing that to try and suggest that they're doing really good PPI. But do the practices align with something that moves it away from tokenism? And do they address one of the fundamental things to co-production, which is this imbalance in power? So are they making conscious efforts to try and do that? And this is where I come back to uh, literature that I've found in the process of doing my work, where there are people who have already written work around defining what co-production is that mean nothing more than collaboration between researchers and people in industry, which is a really important work. But I don't know why that isn't just being called collaboration, because that is what it is. And, and we have to recognise within health research that there has been a failure historically in sort of having these really good partnerships between research and the services, you know, and, and industry. And that's one of the reasons why often evidence isn't taken up in practice or it takes so long for evidence to be taken up in practice. So I'm not saying that there isn't need for that. There, there really is. But is that not just collaboration? If we were going to make a distinction then between collaboration and co-production is, well, that definition of co-production, where it's kind of just collaboration between industry or service providers and people who are generating evidence, so researchers, what is the role of patients, service users, the public, communities? What is the role of that? Actually, that form of co-production can happen without those people. Now, if we go back to involve, that that's, that's not possible because involve is saying this is what patient involvement or public involvement is. So you, it's not then possible to have a form of co-production, which is in the absence of patients, the public, communities. So that, that's where you have that problem. But because that literature exists, people can definitely draw on that literature to say we are doing co-production but they're drawing on a literature which isn't actually particularly helpful. And this is where I'll come back to Sarah Carr, because there are parallels here between what's happening in health uh, research and what's happened, what happened more broadly in sort of policy and practice, which is around sort of the 1990s. New Labour had lots of faults, and I suppose this is one of them, which is that they were very good on branding, I suppose, or suggesting that communities were having more power and doing more things. But were they? So co-production at that point, they were think tanks who were looking into the stuff about time banking and stuff like that. And they picking up on this term. But then what Sarah Carr's work does really well is sort of makes that argument that, yes, they were drawing on that language of radical power sharing. 
but not actually engaging in practices which were radically sharing power. So it's kind of you have really good branding to suggest things are that communities are involved and that the public has an, an input into things, but the practice sort of belies that's not really what, what's happening. So to sort of try and bring that together, PPI and co-production have different histories and theorizations, and the use of the term co-production itself has different origins and then again that's why I think it is important to come back to this idea of the quest for true co-production which is what we see so much when we go to events around what what is co-production those sorts of things people will often articulate what is true co-production I don't think that's a particularly useful exercise to go down mm -hmm. it's more useful to think about in this context what do we mean by co-production and what is the intention of that? So when we evoke this idea of co-production, what is it that we're attempting to achieve? And what's this, what does that signify in this space? And I think that's really important. And, you know, maybe that's an illustration of my background being a sociologist, the importance of the social context, the importance of the sort of the political motivations of doing something or not doing something mm -hmm. and how that impacts inequalities. I think you've really hit on something there, Ollie, and it's something I'm always torn on about whether or not we should go down the road of a really sort of tight definition so we can say with clarity what is and isn't co-production and then we can call out, uh, um, as you said, those projects that use it as a buzzword. And then the other part is thinking, well, actually, people can call whatever they want. It's lot, if it's evolving, it's innovative and it's doing some good, it kind of doesn't matter and let's be creative and just let it evolve. And I'm always torn between the two, but I think you've hit it now on the head there. It's about describing what it is that you are doing. And I think, I think that's the key and the rationale for what you're doing and what you're trying to achieve and making that transparent. Mm, yeah. And so then, not, yeah. Not, not to um, give the listeners with like magicians and telling people how to do the trick, not to ruin it for the listeners, but you have sent questions ahead of time so I have had some time to think about this and I'll come back like in the your sort of last question around what's the sort of one thing I might do to try to focus on we can come back to that then this idea because I would want to talk more then about how useful is this quest for um, true co-production and what might actually be a more useful way around go, going about trying to achieve good within this space where we might use the term co-production. I'm just got a page full of scribbles here but I mean I'm really just delighted that you've kind of you know given your interpretation or, or view of how the two approaches have come along and on parallel maybe but different lines because for me based on my experience of being in academia for the last sort of 15 20 years is that the, the, the conception is is that involvement came first and then production and it just, just doesn't simply happen like that. And, and I don't know whether that misconception is because we haven't made enough enough of, you know, the, con the context and the history, which is so important. And the other thing for me, and which will lead on to sort of my next question, is that based on my experience of PPI and working in co-production, there are fundamental differences to me. And you touched on it, and it was around 
people having a buy-in and a responsibility, if you like, to the actual process of co-producing something and sharing that power. And that is one of the, the, the things I think in the work Gary and I and others have done when we try and define co-production is saying there are some intrinsic differences. It is about, and one of those is about actually sharing power. And in order to do that, you've got to actually dismantle what's already there. Mm -hmm. Which is a massive kind of challenge and, and something I come up against in academia sort of all the time. Mm. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for listening to the first part of this podcast where we've been discussing with Ollie Williams the differences uh, between patient and public involvement in research and co-production. Uh, and please do join us for the second part of this podcast. Thank you very much.